Welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle, and my co-host is Hector Mason from Episode One Ventures. This week, we have Remy Asti, founder at Vorbin, on the podcast. Vorbin's a really interesting company. They essentially allow you to fire up an SPV, otherwise known as a special purpose vehicle, to manage new deals. SPVs are typically used by two groups, either angel syndicates that need to pull their capital into a single entity so they can meet minimum investment thresholds, or by venture capitalists that are looking to do co-investment alongside their fund. It used to take lots of time and effort and legal and financial expertise to create an SPV, but Vorbin makes it really easy with their intuitive platform. So this episode is really great. We just cover all sorts of things like the future of venture, the current state of venture, Remy's experience from being a founder, and cover lots of interesting topics around technology. Let's get started. Welcome, Remy, to Riding Unicorns. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Hector. And yeah, thanks, James, as well, for the invite. Not at all. Sure, it's going to be great. As always, we like to kick things off with a little bit about your background and what's led you to Vauban. Cool. Yeah, so I met my co-founder in a freshman year in university. We kind of quickly became best friends. And especially we connected around our love of technology and of problem solving. You know, we would always be really trying out all sorts of software. You know, most of it, things we didn't really need. And yeah, we really loved beautiful and great software. And quickly conception turned into building. So we started building together a lot of websites. I don't want to say company, but one of them eventually became a company. It was called Tweety. It was a personal shopper on iPhone. It was a little bit like Tinder for fashion. And it kind of got somewhere with its community of users, etc. But it wasn't really going anywhere commercial-wise. So we decided to stop this. And one funny thing is that when we stopped, basically everyone in Univ was like, yeah, we never understood what you guys were doing that. You guys are so unfashionable. Anyway, you know, we did everything ourselves. We bootstrapped. We built everything ourselves. So we learned a lot doing this with Eric. And eventually our interest turned to investment. And we were like, you know, we know software very well, so we should invest in it. Then we realized that we had no money. And, you know, looking up online, it looks like if there's a way to invest other people's money, which is starting a, a fund, and in that case, a venture fund. And we basically quickly found out that, you know, setting up a fund was basically impossible. It was like really, really, really hard. And investing in these companies is nearly impossible as well, right? You need the access, the network, and the net worth. And we didn't have any of these things back then. So we kind of moved on separate careers. So Rick was in an applied math major. So we went and moved to work for an insurance company. I ended up working for a, a blockchain startup. Actually, I had written my master thesis on blockchain. That was in 2015, I think. And basically, I was in that universe where a lot of people had just made a lot of money and it looked like they all wanted to launch their own investment fund. You know, it's like this T-shirt where you see kind of like prehistory men and, you know, slowly standing up, then, you know, getting crawled again on a computer. And I think what comes after that is that he basically became a VC. And yeah, that's essentially when we thought, oh, wait, there's a big opportunity a lot of these people want to become investors and they have no easy way to do so. So that's when we resigned to start Vauban. Really interesting. So you, you basically first hand 
and then saw loads of people looking to make more investments and saw them experiencing the same problem you guys had experienced. So what was the thing that you did sort of on day one and what how did you start to take that concept into you know building a product and a brand and things like that yeah it was really a fake it until you make it kind of story so the first thing we did is we did set up a landing page which kind of you know looked and felt like things were ready and which say you know set up your investment fund online now um something like that and basically the more traction we were on, on having on that landing page the more energy we were having and putting into building yeah the beginning was really rough like <laughs> So Eric and I were sharing the same bedroom in a council housing in North London. And, you know, eventually as people were coming and signing up contracts, we figured out regulations and legals and accounting along the way. Yeah, then, you know, we hired the first person and it was quite kind of funny. So we were in that hot desk area in WeWork in London Fields. You know, I guess it's kind of a bohemian neighborhood you could say. Like not a lot of people do things finance related. And yeah, we were, you know, just in the middle of that floor talking about Cayman and stuff like that on the floor. And I guess people afterwards in that floor that were talking to us said, yeah, we basically thought you guys were part of the organized crime or something. Eventually, you know, we figured it out and we were really this platform to launch an investment vehicle very easily. So we were the easiest way to launch a fund on investment vehicle. We kind of started in venture, but because we had so many inbound requests for other asset classes, we moved to hedge funds as well, and we were about to launch real estate and art at the beginning of this year. Same in terms of jurisdiction, we had multiple platforms and many jurisdictions where you could deploy your vehicle. And there's a good reason why we started all over the place, right? It's survival. Like Eric and I didn't have much money when we started. So, you know, as a matter of survival, we would try to satisfy most of the inquiries that were coming through our website. And earlier this year, we kind of had a deep thinking sessions about our long-term strategy and, and where Vauban was going. And we decided to move out of hedge farm. If you're finding interesting, happy to tell you later on why we decided to do that. But essentially, it was the hardest decision we took, right? We gave up 70% of our revenue. We had to call all of the clients that trusted us super early on to deboard them. The good news is that the feedback was really fast and the focus paid off. I wouldn't say instantly, but very rapidly, right? Within two months, we had recovered the revenue loss. And now we have just two products and we make at least three times more revenue than we were making back then on eight products. And yeah, we have over 400 kind of funds and syndicates on the platform. We onboarded over 5,000 investors. Our clients raised over $800 million through our platform and, you know, growing 2x quarter on quarter. So yeah, it's great. It all uh, paid off well in the end. I think the hedge fund thing would be really interesting to dig into because, you know, this is something that so many companies have to grapple with in their early days is, you know, they go generalist, they think let's offer everything to everyone, they learn what works, they learn what doesn't, and they decide to focus on the things that do. But along the way, you have to make really, really difficult decisions. So how did you go about making that decision? And was it a very clear one? Or was it a punt and you kind of hoped that that focus would d deliver the results that outweigh the, the drop-off in revenue? I think there were two reasons why we did that, decided to move out of it. The first reason is that what we needed to build tech-wise was very specific to hedge fund. Like we couldn't use the same infrastructure to do the rest of the product we are doing and we might do in the future, like venture, real estate, et cetera, like illiquid 
private assets in general. So, you know, we thought, do we really want to have the tech team divided onto infrastructure, et cetera? So that, that was one of the first considerations. I would say the biggest one, and I think really what decided us to do so is that we didn't see a scenario in which we would win essentially with hedge funds. I mean, it was still 70% of revenue, right? It was still making some money, but the thing is we thought, so from there, in, either we kind of climb the ladder and, you know, onboard bigger hedge funds, et cetera. But essentially for multiple reasons, I think big hedge funds, they will always rely on their counsel because they have legal complexity because they're dealing with so many securities, et cetera, that VC can't even have that nightmare about. The other option would have, which I think is the one we were exploring, would have I, I gone you know, more on the long tail, right? It's like doing the micro hedge fund as a service. And this, I really think there's going to be a big market for it. You know, I think social investing is very trendy and I don't think this kind of community investing is going anywhere. I think it's, this trend is going to continue to grow. I think now that you have platforms like Robinhood who kind of uh, almost weaponize <laughs> investment advice through Reddit, I mean, basically, the next logical step to that is that these people, we start setting up farms and investing together in a more organized manner. The thing is that we were not in a very good position to capture that market. I think the ones that will capture that market are actually people like Robin Hood, where they're going to manage to build a managed account that look and feel like a farm, but that's completely electronic, which doesn't have the regulatory and legal complexity of an actual farm. And so once you've made that decision, you focused on on venture what was the moment where you felt we've actually got a product that works and then we've got product market fit like who was that the, who, who built like the first fund on your platform and what was that feeling like when everything actually worked so we were still doing both venture was 30 percent of our revenue back then so it wasn't a complete pivot it was more giving up our biggest business line by revenue and i think honestly like the focus paid off quicker than anyone expected, including me. Basically, in two months, we had completely recovered the revenue. So it just paid off like super, super quickly. But our customers and the kind of people that use us, because essentially what is Vauban at the core is that we make it easy for anyone to become or to be a VC. And the way we do that is by providing the infrastructure that you need as an end-to-end online service. So, you know, we, the easiest way to launch a fund and syndicate, the idea is you focus on finding great startups, we deal with the back office. And as of that, our customers are just very diverse, right? It includes a very established venture firm. In the UK, we work, for example, with like Octopus or Anthemus or Passion Capital. And they would typically use us because they want to save time and money deploying their funds and SPVs. But we also have like dozens and dozens of amazing angel groups, more family offices that run their syndicates on Vauban. I would say what all of our customers have in common is that, simply put, they enable great ideas to develop and come to market by providing cash and advice to founders. And basically, we enabling them, right? We're enabling the enablers. So we're here to make sure that they don't get bogged down in a process in which they're not, nor do they want to be an expert. And we make sure that there is as little friction as possible between tools who have the capital and tools we needed to solve humanity's biggest problems. You know how much I love what you're doing and what all the other players are, players are doing at the moment. 
yeah, the space is really hotting up. And you know, there's AngelList in the UK, in the US who've been doing this for a while. There's, there's you guys, there's, there's Odin, there, I'm sure a number of other players around the around the globe. And and they're all they're all you know playing their part in this kind of let's call it democratization of of finance. And and we're seeing it we're seeing it all over the place. We're seeing it's kind of started mainly in the US with you know people who, who had a great exit or had options in a company like Coinbase and were made millionaires overnight by an IPO. Start to become super angels. Start to have sole GP funds where they're just investing their own money. But really, the whole landscape is changing. I'm interested to hear what, how you see the fundraising landscape playing out over the next 10 years and, and where Vauban sits in amongst all that. I mean, VC investments is growing for sure. I don't think there has ever been that much of it in the past, but I guess <laughs> you guys know, you know, know that without me, like it, it's, it's very obvious. I guess the good news is that I believe that it's just the beginning I think it's always hard to realize when you're at the beginning of an exponential, you'll always have people calling it, calling it a bubble. The example I always give is when I was at school studying finance, pretty much half of the people would call companies like Amazon or Apple a bubble, and they were worth like 100 billions or something like that at that time. So not a lot. And yeah, I believe that we are only at the very beginning of what tech can do for humans. And I really believe in the exponential. And I think that VC investment has a critical role to play in it. So there might be cycles. I'm, I'm not sure, but overall, I think it's still day one. In terms of specific trends that we see on the platform and that we are so grateful to be enabling, I mean, there's definitely a rise of syndicate in Europe. So I mean, obviously, Angelist has done uh, an amazing job in America. I think they do like 600 SPVs per month now, which is pretty insane. But essentially, this professionalization of angel investment that we've seen in the US, it's definitely coming to Europe. Like, you're really getting all kinds of people signing up on the platform to launch their syndicates. You know, we have a doctor that has nothing to do with the venture world, and he gets a lot of deal flow because of a role he has advising an institution on a specific biotechnology and yeah, he basically inv invites his network to invest on a deal-by-deal -deal basis in this biotech he finds the most um, appealing. We've got a lot of alumni syndicates, like the Google EMEA one here. We're in talk with the one from Spotify right now. We're seeing a lot of solo GPs, and definitely there's a democratization of being an investor in private companies. Something else we're seeing, and again, we're glad to be able to enable it, is like there's a big wave for deal by deal in general a lot of vc starts offering deal by deal opportunities to their lps through robin and they say it's just we have a lot of demand from our lps for that for this co-investment and what's interesting is that almost all of them they were not doing it before right like it's the first time they ever do that through us which you know is really heartwarming so just on that so i mean episode one of of use Vauban I think for, for one recently and it, if for funds it's just amazing because where it used to be complicated to spin up an SPV which was off-putting you know now being able to do it in 10 minutes obviously there's some herding of people and chasing people but to be able to do that so quickly and basically boost your assets under management is just you know that that's the whole new opportunity for VC funds yeah no exactly thanks a lot for saying that <laughs> 
That's cool. No, no, it's exactly what we're all about. And I think this SPV deal by deal will stay. Like we in talk with like private banks where they're like, our clients now, they really want these kind of direct investment opportunities. And I think it's just because deal by deal is fun. And it's what Chris Adelsberg, one of our customers, was a big angel investor who sometimes syndicate deals through Vauban as well. You know, he was saying in direct investment opportunities, you have the social reward, right? Like at a dinner party, you may say I invested in Revolut or in that company's creating antiviral medicines against COVID. But you're probably not going to talk in the same manner about, you know, I've invested in benchmark fund for LLP or something. And I think as wealth is passing generation, people are getting more and more sensible to that. So, yeah, I think most VC firms, like they will always have their core funds and it's very important to, to have that. But I really think that there's going to be a, essentially, they all have to, they're all going to have to offer co-investments to their LPs in the future. Yeah, it's all, almost to the point where, why wouldn't a VC do Vorban SPVs on the side for on a deal by deal basis to to support some of their portfolio or then in, invest again in the next round, even if they're it's off mandate from their traditional fund? It's re- really really interesting. Absolutely, yeah. So I'm interested to go a bit back to when you first fundraise. So you've you've raised money. So at what point did you decide it was a good time to fundraise? How did you go about that? And what tips might you have for other founders who are looking at fundraising? I mean, the first round uh, pre-seed, that, that wasn't easy, right? The good news is that if you're a, a very early stage founder, the good news is that it gets easier, thankfully. But yeah, the first round, right, it was really hard, right? We didn't know a lot of people. We had a small business. It was just three of us back then. So Eric, I, and our first employee called Brian. And the first strategy we did was to contact people on LinkedIn that would self-proclaim themselves as angel investor. And that didn't really work, right? Because, you know, most of these guys, they get a lot of inbound because they, you know, they say it out loud, I'm an angel investor. I guess the market wasn't as hot back then as it is today as well. Then we changed slightly our strategy and that actually paid off more handsomely. It was to search for people on LinkedIn who... We knew have significant income or wealth. So, you know, you would target people that have senior positions in like investment banks or consulting firms or private equity firms, hedge funds. And then, you know, if you approach these people and ask for advice and get on the call with them, and then you're like, you know, by the way, we're raising a pre-seed. Do you know anyone that might be interested? We thought that that worked like really, really well for us. I like yeah, that just going back to the doctor who's using it slightly different topic, not fundraising for you, but but spinning up people. I love the idea that there's a doctor who's investing in loads of early stage businesses. I'm not sure you want like someone with that higher risk appetite um, <laughs> operating <laughs> from your heart or something. <laughs> it's true, actually. I didn't think of that. I'm sure he's a great surgeon, great doctor. But well, anyway, no. yeah, no, su- su- super interesting. So I, I think that's a really interesting thing around like founders approaching people through LinkedIn and often people with angel investors aren't always angel investors and and people who are like managing director at a big bank or something, most of them are looking at EIS and stuff like that now. So there is an interesting kind of angle there. And we've done it at Pringle Capital. We've, we've oh, awesome. Yeah, we've kind of gone through and 
message people and seeing who, who is and who isn't interested in early stage investing. London is a great place for that as well because there's just a lot of them, right? Like I think like London has done a really great job into attracting all that kind of finance industry. So there are just a lot of these people in London. There are that many that you can even sub-target the ones that you're likely to have some kind of affinity with. So, I mean, our project is launch your own fund, right? And it's many people's dreams. So I guess we got help by that as well, that these people will understand what we do very, very well. But for example, if it's a sports sport tech company, I guess you could approach people in P firms that work on, I don't know, football clubs buyout or something related to sports. You get they would have some kind of affinity for that. Um, you know, because I'm French in London as well, I guess I would target heavily people <laughs> that were, you know, French living here as well. Yeah, I guess there's that many that you can even sub-target people that you're likely to have an affinity with. Yeah, it's interesting actually because the, the power of LinkedIn search is, is often underutilized. I mean, even recently we had someone asking us about how to find a CTO and we said, we'll go and speak to other CTOs. <laughs> And, and and see who they could recommend and stuff. And someone actually found their CTO through that model. So it's unbelievable. There's it's, lots it's, really, it's, really, it's really unbelievable. Like even, you know, you get someone names and instantly you go how they are, where they went to school, what they like, et cetera. Like, I think it's something not so long ago only the CIA could do, right? And even I don't know if they had that many information and you can approach anyone. And I think that's something I've learned along the way as well is that people in general are a lot nicer than you might think they are. Like if you approach, most people would reply, like if you send a very friendly message on LinkedIn. So yeah, it's unbelievable. It's like the network is great. And the search tool, as you said, is unbelievable. You talked about getting really focused and then sort of finding that product market fit and then it's scaling out. And you found your silver bullet with fundraising and reaching out to people that had relevant experience. Is there anything that you would go back and do differently? Like, what was something you think we wasted a lot of time or energy doing something that wasn't quite right? I don't think I really regret anything. I'm a very optimistic person in life. So I believe everything happens for a reason. But I mean, there are things, essentially, if I had to say something to my younger self, one of the things I would say is that essentially as a founder, a lot of advice is going to flow your way. So basically, there's a lot of content that's dedicated to your consumptions on YouTube, on Udemy, people on social networks, influencers. They will create all that content, VCs, etc. that's supposed to tell you how to run your company. But it's not just that, right? Everyone you meet, especially if you're a young founder, is going to give you some advice. Your investors, you listen to podcasts, there's some advice flowing through as well, advisors, consultants, etc., it takes a little while to realize, but if you listen enough of this advice, the sum of all of that, it's basically zero, right? Because someone says something, someone says the opposite. And on any precise point, you kind of going to find example for one and example for the other side of the coin. So while I think it's very important to be open to it, to listen, to consider it, because it gives you tools, it gives you perspectives, I think that nothing should be followed religiously. Like there's no advice that you should follow religiously. You kind of need to believe in something for your company and to believe it through storms, even if it's very hard. So I would say that's the main thing I've learned along the way.
a great piece of advice and yeah i wholeheartedly agree just to to add to that almost there are plenty of people who give out bad advice <laughs> i mean yeah. I've, I've spoken to plenty of founders who have heard advice from advisors or whoever else that it's just dud advice it's it's advice from people who aren't actually close enough to what you're doing one is i don't send a pitch deck before having a meeting with an investor there's some consultant out there is telling founders not to send pitch decks and it's really damaging just send your pitch deck if we like it we'll book a meeting <laughs> exactly no no exactly there's a lot like that where yeah i think the west the one size fits all doesn't really work for an adventure that has unpredictable as building a company every journey is unique you're going to find example of both side you know maybe someone's going to have raise a crazy lot of money without giving his PDH before the first meeting. But I'm sure you can find arguably even more people that have just <laughs> sent their pitch deck first, like most people do, and raise a lot of money. So yeah, essentially, people have a certain angle to it. And it's important to be conscious of that. For example, when you get advice from VCs as well, I think it's valuable because they see a lot of company. So they have an idea of what works and that you don't have as a founder because you only know your company. But it's important to know as well that most strategic decisions, et cetera, should be entirely taken by you because you know, you know your market, you know your customers, you know your industry. You, you've, we, we touched on it a little bit at the beginning. You're clearly got kind of entrepreneurship running through you. You tried a few things before. And so what does being an entrepreneur mean to you and why did you know that that's what you wanted to do? I think being an entrepreneur is doing everything. But I think if you really want to scale, it's doing one thing more than any other thing. And it's really to find great people to work with you for your company. And with Vauban, I really think that it's one of our strengths that everybody on the team has to be able to operate holistically and see the whole story. So we have that approach where we hire a lot of very generalist people, which kind of go against the average trend in the industry. Yeah, essentially, I think it's one of my passion as well to find the right ones and making sure they get on board perfectly and that the culture of the company runs smoothly. And yeah, I think this is probably uh, most of what it means to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I guess there's a piece that sort of comes before that which makes what you've talked about possible, which is having a vision that is compelling and solving a problem that you're passionate about. And that passion of yours, I'm sure, is infectious and, and carries through the, the company and allows you to hire those people that you so want to hire. No, no, exactly. I think it's most, yeah, it's what, most of what it means to be a startup entrepreneur. It's exactly that, you know, it's defining the vision, the mission, the strategy, and then it's finding the best of the best to build it with you. As someone who's dealt with a lot of your team, I can say you're doing a very good job. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. I think it's really one of our... Essentially, I think once you get that super high quality of people to work hand in hand together, you really create something that's very, very defensive, very, very defensible, a lot more defensible than a lot of the things we typically think as being a competitive advantage. So yeah, it's great. I really think it's the most important. But thanks a lot for saying that. I think so as well. I think we've done a great job. And I think everyone's amazing in that team. There's a piece of insight in what you just said, which I think is actually really provable, but potentially really valuable, which other founders should take note of. And that is the defensibility around a strong team. 
I mean, it's something that's almost impossible to prove. But if you looked at all of the big companies, the ones who have great culture, um, all that, having a great culture and having great people is a prerequisite of building a really successful company. And so it could very well be that that is the common fact between all these companies. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to highlight that piece of insight. Remy, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on the show. I absolutely love what you're doing. We both do. And um, can't wait to see what, what you guys achieve over the next few years. But before we end, we always like to play the dinner party guest game. If you were to have three people over dinner, a business lunch or a business dinner, who would those three people be? It would be a dinner to start with. <laughs> so I think I will go with so Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist. So he's one of my favorite writer. And essentially, I really love how he takes extremely complex problems of human nature and breaks them down to make a great story, right? A great novel. And I love this process of transformation. I think there's a lot that we can learn from his philosophy even today. But he has put it in a way that's still consumable today. And I, and I really admire that. Someone else would be Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. So for those who don't know, he's famous for having written The Little Prince, the short book. But something non-French people wouldn't know about is that he has also pioneered commercial aviation and airmail. And, and he wrote that amazing book about, about it that's called Vol de Nuit. So I guess it's night flight in English. And he emphasizes a lot on the sacrifices that needs to be done in the name of progress. And he poses very deep questions with a huge philosophical reach to them about how we should approach technology and how much importance it should have of our life. And how much he can solve human problems in the future. And the last one would be more contemporary. And I would go with, I think, Naval Ravikant. So he's the founder of Angelist, which is obviously a huge inspiration for Vauban. But for the, Nida, the dinner, I think I would welcome the kind of philosopher Naval rather than the business owner. And yeah, essentially, I'm taking as a, as a person great interest into the the future of human being. And of course, I'm particularly interested in the impact tech and economy will have on it. And, you know, Naval has that very positive and capitalistic view of the world, which is a reflection of his time and his history. And I think he also tried to put complex human problems into very consumable medium. It's tweet storms, right? It's even <laughs> quicker to read than a novel and easier to read than a novel. But essentially, Naval has that very, he essentially thinks that, you know, capitalism and technology have brought us a level of comfort never attained before. And he's right. He couldn't be more correct, right? You fire up Netflix and you have a quality of entertainment that only dukes and kings could enjoy 200 years ago. You know, through Uber, I think Uber, I think I probably used more chauffeur and taxis in a month than my parents did combined in their entire life. And I find that this is great and true, but it kind of makes the assumption that basically we only need comfort and health to be happy and that we just need to be happy to be satisfied and fulfilled. And obviously, I think the two other guys, at, at these two other guys at the dinner party wouldn't agree with that. So it should be a very rich debate. Yeah, a, a really good dinner of intense debate and deep thought. Yeah, I'm really glad that someone's picked Naval because he's one of the best people to follow on Twitter. So, and it's the you're the first person to bring him up, which is great. 
yeah, yeah he's great <laughs> <laughs> great stuff awesome Remy thanks so much for coming on the show it's been an absolute pleasure cool thanks guys for having me thanks Remy cheers thanks for listening to Riding Unicorns if you haven't already please like and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform if you want to receive episodes direct to your inbox go to ridingunicorns.substack.com and subscribe on there as well see you next time <laughs>